Before I begin, I just wanted to give a quick content warning. I do discuss sexual assault in the upcoming episode, and I wanted to put that out there so that anyone who needs to can steer clear, and I just wanted to give you a heads up and let you know. The stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to episode 6 of Podcast of the Dragon. At the end of my last episode, I told you that it was going to be the first of two parts about Egwene in the eye of the world, but that was a damnable lie. Welcome to part two of three. I'm going to explore Egwene's relationship with Nynaeve, and I'm going to examine what happens when you go into something thinking it's going to be awesome and get way more than you bargained for. As people of marriageable age, the young Emmons Fielders should have been free to go out into the world and do whatever they felt like doing. If you're free to marry, it follows logically that you're free to make your own choices. But the social conventions of the two rivers give people very little freedom, and to leave, you really have no choice but to run away. When Nynaeve's in the hall of the stag and lion after they've had their disastrous little meeting with Moraine, uh, and she's telling Rand about his dad, she refers to Tam as someone who ran away as a boy. In the prologue of Lord of Chaos, the Four Wisdoms come to talk to Fayil about the village's problems, and they refer to boys who are truthfully young men as a problem of young men, boys, having run away. To attain your freedom from the two rivers, you have to run away, and it's perceived that way. Think about Rand's outrage and confusion when he hears Egwene say to him that there are other villages that she can go and be a wisdom at. He can't even believe it, and it's not even that he feels entitled for her to be his wife so much as that she would do something so outlandish. That's just something that does not happen. People do not leave. If you leave, there has to be something wrong. So let's face it, even had an Aes Sedai not been the impetus behind the four kids leaving Emmons Field, someone would probably have been sent to fetch them. The very stifling nature of that lack of choice forces anyone who leaves of their own volition to consciously make a break. Of the three boys, Rand and Perrin don't want to leave, and even Matt really doesn't want to, but anything that happens with Matt through the first two books, including any agency or motivations he has, has to be set aside because nothing that goes on with him through the Great Hunt is necessarily relevant from the Dragon Reborn on, except for the dagger. Perrin never emotionally leaves the two rivers. His heart is always there, and he ends up going back and becoming a leader there. It's his place. And Rand only breaks with the two rivers to punish himself. In the depths of his mental illness and his self-disgust, his need to be cold and hard and alone and less than human, and his need to make sure he's seen as someone with no ties to anything and no love for anything. The dagger breaks Matt from the two rivers, either on its own or because being cleansed from it scoured away so much of what Matt was and left a shaky foundation for who he is to be. 
When Matt wakes after being healed and we get his inner narrative describing the room that he's in, he opens his eyes and he sees like the carvings on the ceilings and he looks around, the mattress is rich and the carpet and everything. And he's looking at his spotty memories and managing to work out that he's in Tarvalon because He's been washed clean of who he might have been and who he was. He's kind of a blank slate. Um, one of my favorite Wheel of Time podcasts is called the Wheel of Time Spoilers Podcast. And uh, one of the hosts talks about this penny polishing theory with Matt. That when he's like the soiled penny and when he's been cleansed from the dagger, it's like they polished him so vigorously that they just took a little bit too much on the surface, off of the surface. And he's just kind of blank and he just does not have the same attachments anymore. So he wakes in Tarvalon and he is eager to get out into the city and he is strangely knowledgeable about how it functions, even though he's never actually been in a city where he was free to throw himself into it. When he and Rand were in Camelon, he didn't want to be there and he wouldn't go out. It was way too loud. It was too crowded. As It was extremely stressful for him. Uh, he didn't really have any time to explore when they were in Kyrian. But now he is so excited to be out there and to be gambling, to be exploring Tarvalon, and to be seeing the world. The dagger from Shatter Logoth caused the luck in Matt to awaken because it did something to his Tavira nature. It unlocked one of his abilities and helped set his path toward gaining the others and acquiring his artifacts. And it helped break Matt free from the two rivers. It let him see that it wasn't the place for him. There's no real gambling there, and everybody's really judgy. Sluttiness is frowned upon. And Matt is not someone who is interested in others' expectations. That's one of the big things that we get from his character the minute that we finally get the, to see the inside of his head, is that this is somebody who doesn't give a shit what other people expect from him. So he just, he wakes up to being way too big for his village. He didn't leave by choice, but he sees that it's right for him, and he never wants to go back. Egwene, unlike the boys, did choose to leave. She was probably anticipating leaving the two rivers to be pretty uneventful. Even with the Trolloc attack, she doesn't believe that they're after the boys, and, I mean, why would she? There's nothing about the boys that is particularly interesting. There's nothing that would make them special. She has never known anything about them that makes it believable that they would be the targets for Shadowspawn. So I think it is perfectly logical that she thinks that they're bullshitting her. And Moraine does not back the boys up when they're like, the Trollocs are after us. You know, she doesn't have time for this shit. She's like, everybody stop arguing. Obviously, this girl is insistent. Let's let's just get the fuck out of here. Um, and she doesn't take any time to validate what the boys are saying. Regardless, Egwene does not get the uneventful trip she might have expected. She had to have known there would be danger, because if she read the room at all when she went into the barn, there, you know, it's it's tense. And then there's this uncomfortable scene when Lon says she can ride the Gleeman's horse and Tom basically comes popping out of the hayloft and Lon draws his sword on Tom after he's like, oh no, I'm going to come with you. There is so much stress and tension in the air and the sense that if Tom didn't say or do the right thing, Moraine might tell Lon to kill him. Um, but I don't know if Egwene even picked up on all of that the way that Rand did. She's normally a lot more perceptive than he is, but she may have been way too focused on the fact that she was not going to be left behind on how she was going to state her case and advocate for herself if they tried to tell her no, or how she was going to try to keep her courage and stand up to Moraine, because getting in an isodized face and saying, I'm coming with you and you can't tell me no, takes a lot of guts. Either way, she gets a terrifying trip instead of an uneventful one. But I'm not sure how frightened she is about it, because she was in the village during the Trolloc attack, and she saw Moraine and Lon defended. 
and she may very well believe Moran can kill anything that comes after them, so she may not be very fearful when they're fleeing the two rivers because she's seen some great demonstrations of the One Power, and she may think that there is nothing that cannot be conquered by the true source, and she's in the full spirit of adventure, and so she's just smiling as they flee. She is happy to be leaving. She's taking charge and doing something different. I personally, I'm the kind of person who I tend to wait for life to put change in my path before I make a choice to do something because I'm afraid of making mistakes. Warden, you're a person who very rarely feels in charge of your own destiny and you can actually make a choice and make a change for yourself. It is so empowering and exciting. It almost makes you feel high. I think for Egwene that there have been very rare times in her life where she has felt empowered. And this choice, this leaving of the two rivers, seizing the moment is one of them. And it is a perfect example of what Rand says to himself as he's looking over at her, she's smiling, that there is a difference between seeking adventure and having it thrust upon you and how you perceive everything. And I think that this is a theme Jordan is exploring throughout this first book about the type of soldier Rand and the other boys are versus what Egwene is. The difference between being a draftee versus being a volunteer. I'm late with the second part of this bit about Egwene because I had to take more time to contemplate exactly how it should go. And while considering it, I had a whole bunch of revelations and I began to really think about how it must have been for Robert Jordan to have to write a character and try to show development while never being able to show her point of view and try to get his point across. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no wonder he had the dagger white mat clean. If he'd had to do that with two of his main characters, it would have been too much. It's one of the things that makes this series so great um, I, I don't even know how many times I've reread The Eye of the World. Uh, I started reading the series in the early 90s. Um, there were only four books out, uh, but the fifth one came out shortly after I got into it. So I really didn't start waiting for books until book six. And even then, that one came out like only a year later. It was only book seven where you really had to start waiting multiple years for books. So I've read the first five to six books more than the others and then decreasing amounts of times as the series went on. This is the first time that I've ever really tried to think about what's going on in Egwene's head rather than just noticing how the others react to her and not even imagining what things are like for her until she actually tells me about it in The Great Hunt. And it's been so enlightening. And just noticing this theme, this difference between being the volunteer and being the person who's drafted, you get the inner narrative of the draftees in Perrin and in Rand, but you get this external thing with Egwene where she gets to this point where it's been fun and games and excitement, and then they get to Barlon and she's exhausted. She hasn't bathed in a week and she has the strain of the travel and she's been arguing with Rand a whole bunch. And then they get shadow spawn again. And suddenly it's no longer this glorious chase that they've been on. It's genuinely terrifying. And it makes me think that she probably didn't have a close encounter with Trollocs when they attacked the village. I think her parents probably ordered her and her sisters to stay inside the inn. And looking at that scene, I see Egwene going straight for the windows, staring outside to see what's going on and watching um, because she would not have stayed away. But having that kind of separation so that she's frightened, but it's not the terror of being in the middle of everything. And then she starts seeing the one power being used by Moraine. And that would have, like, taken away the terror out of just her pure enthusiasm by it. Um, so I think, I think her fear of the Trollocs was offset by her just utter enthusiasm and awe for the Aes Sedai. 
There's no doubt of Egwene's courage, but at the time that she chooses to leave with the party, she does not know what the stake is. She has to ask Moraine, during one of their talks on the trip to Barlon, why the Trollocs came to Emmons Field. And we've got this great scene between them and Rance eavesdropping on them, so Moraine just turns and looks at the bushes straight at him. Egwene doesn't really know what she's getting herself into, and that seems in essence to be kind of the experience of anyone who volunteers to go into the military looking for excitement and adventure, and they're thinking about how they're going to blow this shit up, and they're thinking of all the war movies that they've seen, and they're super stoked about it, and they're just like, oh, it's going to be such awesome shit, and then what happens when they actually see what things are like, and when they get into a position of real fear, and they face death, and everything goes wrong, and it's really, really humbling. Looking at the rest of the book, from when they re-encounter Shadowspawn and Barlon, through to Shatter, Logoth, and to the end, and seeing what happens once Egwene quote-unquote sees real action, you see the journey of a volunteer that's pushed to their limits. And it's going to make this reread so much more illuminating for me with her character, and I feel like when I get her first point of view in The Great Hunt, rather than the impression I had always gotten of her as this kind of naive blank slate, I think I'm going to see her rather as this adaptable person who is shell-shocked, and she's been kind of brought to her senses about her own vulnerability, and she's recovering from a whole bunch of shit that happened, and is gathering herself, and focused on a problem of being smacked in the face with the heartbreaking reality that someone she thought that she was going to marry, and then thought she probably wouldn't marry because they didn't want the same things, and then because they were out in the world together, thought that she might actually get to marry, and now knows that she won't marry because he's going to die soon of a horrible affliction. She's focused on dealing with that, all the while about to embark on the path toward becoming an Aes Sedai. So when I see her first in The Great Hunt, and I get that first POV, I'm going to see her less as this sweetly portrayed naive girl, and more as someone who's in a state of deep quiet that you feel after a terrible trauma. And the only trauma I can relate, I lost a dog in a really traumatic way, which is nothing compared to what the characters face, but it was so shocking and so impacting, it changed me. I had to change who I was in order to deal with it, and I was in a state of deep quiet and shock and recovery for months, but I was determined to cope with it, so I was consciously processing things, and I think Egwene consciously processes things, and I'm beginning more and more to think that RJ didn't show that because he didn't know how to. He can't tell us much about her dealing with that trauma, say, of being to Manny, beyond that her fear is hair trigger in the beginning, which is why when they're confronted with the white cloaks coming back to Tarvalin, she blows them up, and her inner mantra is, I won't lose my freedom. When it comes to her coping methods, he just shows her calming down over time and becoming steadier and more self-assured. What he does show us is the boys, quote-unquote, processing their trauma in the garbage, non-processing fashion in which they do it, which I think is Robert Jordan's commentary on something that he did not know was called toxic masculinity. I think that The Wheel of Time is his ode to toxic masculinity and how bad it is for men. He didn't know how to show how Egwene processed her trauma because he didn't know how women process trauma. He just knew how men didn't. He knew that women were better at it, though, um, which is why he gives us this lovely cast of strong female characters who are better at dealing with their shit because they actually deal with their emotions. Um, and I think that as we explore more of the series and his 
ideas about gender and people's ways of dealing with things, I'll explore it. But I really do think that he writes his female characters as able to better deal with things because he did truly believe that women dealt with that stuff better because they had outlets to do so because of something that he probably did not know to call toxic masculinity. But coming back from this lovely tangent, Egwene chooses to leave the two rivers. She's wanted to leave for a long time. The very night she leaves, early in the morning, she asks Moraine how to become an Aes Sedai, and Moraine tells her that not only can she learn, the ability is inborn. And so her choice to leave is validated, and it has to be so liberating because at that point there is no way that it could have been a mistake. She doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would have second-guessed herself too much, but she would have had at least some doubts, and so this would have been wonderful to just know, oh, no, it had to be this way. I had to go for training because this ability is inborn and I don't have a choice. This was the right thing to do. Maureen had obviously planned on sending someone back for her, but when Egwene was so insistent that she was coming, Maureen has undoubtedly been spending many, many years contemplating what dealing with a Tevirin would mean. And so when she gets this girl who is incredibly insistent that she's coming along, when people do not insist with Aes Sedai, it told her right there, this must be part of the pattern. It would not, this girl would not be in my face telling me she's coming with me if it weren't part of a Taviran's tugging and part of the web of the pattern being made. And so she can come with us. So Egwene's choice is validated. And two days later, she officially closes the door on the two rivers. There was the morning that Egwene awoke and began unbraiding her hair. Rand watched from the corner of his eye as he made up his blanket roll. Every night when the fire was doused, everyone took to their blankets except for Egwene and the Aes Sedai. The two women always went aside from the others and talked for an hour or two, returning when the others were asleep. Egwene combed her hair out, one hundred strokes, he counted, while he was saddling Cloud, tying his saddlebags and blanket behind the saddle. Then she tucked the comb away, swept her loose hair over her shoulder, and pulled up the hood of her cloak. Startled, he asked, "'What are you doing?' She gave him a sidelong look without answering. It was the first time he had spoken to her in two days, he realized, since the night in the log shelter on the bank of the Terran, but he did not let that stop him. All your life you've waited to wear your hair in a braid, and now you're giving it up? Why? Because she doesn't braid hers? I said I don't braid their hair, she said simply. At least not unless they want to. You aren't an Aes Sedai. Your Egwene Alvear from Emmons Field and the women's circle would have a fit if they could see you now. Women's circle business is none of yours, Randall Thor, and I will be an Aes Sedai just as soon as I reach Tarvalon. He snorted. As soon as you reach Tarvalon. Why? Why, tell me that. You're no dark friend. Do you think Maureen Sedai is a dark friend? Do you? She squared around to face him with her fist clenched, and he almost thought she was going to hit him. After she saved the village? After she saved your father? I don't know what she is, but whatever she is, it doesn't say anything about the rest of them. The stories... Grow up, Rand. Forget the stories and use your eyes. My eyes saw her sink the ferry. Denied that. Once you get an idea in your head, you won't budge even if somebody points out you're trying to stand on water. If you weren't such a light-blinded fool, you'd see... And then it just goes on until Lon tells them to shut up, and it's really awkward. She unravels her braid. She closes the door on the two rivers and accepts Moraine as her mentor, and when Rand offers his unsolicited opinion, she's very offended. Egwene is so over the norms of the two rivers. She's been done with them for ages, and now she gets to openly shock them. Moraine is her new role model, and a whole new world opens up. Things don't have to be any certain way, and they certainly don't have to be a two rivers way. And with someone with all of the authority of an Aes Sedai as a mentor, Egwene stands on really firm footing, because she respects Moraine's opinion a hell of a lot more than she does Rand's. And so she unbraids her hair, and when Rand flips out on her, she's frustrated and fed up. 
She believes in using your brain and the evidence of your senses rather than lore and superstitions, and she's outraged because she saw the work Moraine and Lon did in defending the village. Rand didn't. Rand didn't see her running all over the place trying to save everybody and healing people. But he should at least have the sense to know that Moraine saving his dad speaks for a lot. So for him to say, you're no dark friend, why would you want to be an Aes Sedai, is so offensive to Egwene. From the get-go, Egwene has a much better sense of the kind of person Moraine is than Rand does. She has seen compassion from her. She has seen courage from her. She has interacted with her when she first came to the village. She saw curiosity and kindness, genuine benevolence. Moraine and Egwene have this whole relationship that mostly happens off-screen, and it's really great. They have this combination of fondness that grows into tension as Egwene gets more stubborn and distance as Moraine gets wrapped up in her impending demise. I would love an eye-of-the-world point of view from Egwene just to hear her thoughts about Moraine and how impressive and exciting and admirable she finds her. Egwene is pissed off that Rand doesn't use his eyes and his brain. She's annoyed that he doesn't think and wonder why Moraine sunk the ferry. She's pissed that he doesn't think about gray eventualities and accept that, hard as it might seem, it was the right thing to do. Egwene has embraced this new path, but she's not doing it fearlessly. She has a lot of concerns, but she's practical. Rather than letting fear hold her back, she seeks out facts and information. She is so much more open-minded than the others. She never lets her fears rule her. We get a really good scene where Rand sneaks up and spies on Egwene and Moraine while they're having a nighttime talk. Ask, Moraine was saying, and if I can tell you now, I will. Understand there is much for which you are not yet ready, things you cannot learn until you have learned other things which require still others to be learned before them, but ask what you will. The five powers, Egwene said slowly, earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. It doesn't seem fair that men should have been strongest in wielding earth and fire. Why should they have had the strongest powers? Moraine laughed. Is that what you think, child? Is there a rock so hard that wind and water cannot wear it away, a fire so strong that water cannot quench it or wind snuff it out? Egwene was silent for a time, digging her toe into the forest floor. They... They were the ones who, who tried to free the Dark One and the Forsaken, weren't they? The male, I said I. She took a deep breath and picked up speed. The women were not part of it. It was the men who went mad and broke the world. You were afraid, Moraine said grimly. If you had remained in Emmons Field, you would have become wisdom in time. That was Nynaeve's plan, was it not? Or you would have sat in the women's circle and managed the affairs of Emmons Field while the village council thought it was doing so. But you did the unthinkable. You left Emmons Field, left the two rivers seeking adventure. You wanted to do it, and at the same time you were afraid of it, and you were stubbornly refusing to let your fear best you. You would not have asked me how a woman becomes an Aes Sedai otherwise. You would not have thrown custom and convention over the fence otherwise. No, Egwene protested. I'm not afraid. I do want to become an Aes Sedai. And a little bit later, it is not an easy road you have chosen. I will not turn back, Egwene said, be that as it may, but you still want reassurance and I cannot give it to you, not in the way you want. I don't understand. You want to know that Aes Sedai are good and pure, that it was those wicked men of the legends who caused the breaking of the world, not the women. Well, it was the men, but they were no more wicked than any men. They were insane, not evil. The Aes Sedai you will find in Tarvalon are human, no different from any other women except for the ability that sets us apart. They are brave and cowardly, strong and weak, kind and cruel, warm-hearted and cold. Becoming an Aes Sedai will not change you from what you are. It's, it's funny that Moraine can say that and not have it be a lie. Because becoming an Aes Sedai does change someone from what she is. It's the kind of career path you can't take without being changed. A person can have a path in their life where they do any number of different kinds of jobs, where they maintain the same type of personality, 
but there are certain jobs that weigh on you and change you jobs that are so stressful or whose environments are so toxic that you can't help but be changed by it. Maybe the reason Maureen can say what she says and have it not be a lie is because she spends as little time in the tower as possible. Not being part of the tower politics and all of the bullshit that weighs everybody down, that kind of almost meat grinder that is Aes Sedai politicking, allows her to make decisions for herself and make her own choices and therefore she gets to be more her own true and genuine self in a way so many of the Aes Sedai that we meet later on just don't get to be. Egwene and Nynaeve have a special relationship. Since most of what we see of them happens after their power dynamic starts noticeably shifting, so from the Dragon Reborn on, we don't often think about before. The morning after Shattered Logoth, Nynaeve comes upon Moraine and Lon on the bank of the Aranel, and Moraine proceeds to tell Nynaeve that she can channel. And Nynaeve doesn't believe her at first and says, Why don't you try claiming I'm a Trolloc? Moraine's smile was so knowing that Nynaeve wanted to hit her. Do you think I can stand face to face with a woman who can touch the true source and channel the one power, even if only now and then, without knowing what she is? Just as you sensed the potential in Egwene, how do you think I knew you were behind that tree? If I had not been distracted, I would have known the moment you came close. You certainly are not a Trolloc for me to feel the evil of the Dark One. So what did I sense, Niney Valmira, wisdom of Emmonsfield, an unknowing wielder of the One Power? Lon was looking down at Niney in a way she did not like, surprised and speculative it seemed to her, though nothing had changed about his face but his eyes. Egwene was special. She had always known that. Egwene would make a fine wisdom. So we never have a timeline for when Egwene and Nynaeve start developing their relationship. We know Nynaeve was occasionally her babysitter because she tells Moraine she used to look after her when she was a toddler. And we know that she healed her because when she's describing her first channeling experience, she admits to having healed her. In the scene in Ravens, when Egwene is wandering around and she comes upon Nynaeve as she is wrapping up the drunken conger's leg under Mistress Byron's gaze, Nynaeve senses her behind her and more or less tells her to fuck off. Like, you know, don't you have anything that you need to do, Egwene? There's no real sense of familiarity like you might have for someone that you're close to. So I think it wasn't until Egwene was a bit older that what they have between them developed. Nynaeve is eight years older than Egwene, and I wonder if at some point Nynaeve started being the person that Egwene wished one of her sisters would be, someone who would give her a real conversation and treat her seriously, not dismiss her. They have an almost unhealthy relationship. Despite that, each is the other's best source of support and validation. Egwene has loving and supportive parents, but because she's the youngest, they likely feel inclined to baby her, which she hates more than anything. Nynaeve sees her on her merits and talks to her like an intellectual equal, not necessarily in wisdom, but in a capacity for intelligence at least. Nynaeve makes Egwene feel good about herself in a way no one else has. Nynaeve is really smart. She knows Egwene is smart. They talk about smart shit. Nynaeve doesn't treat Egwene like a baby, and I can see the attention Nynaeve gives Egwene being very good for her. On her end, Egwene gives Nynaeve the respect that she's due in a way no one else does, intelligent conversation, competence, efficiency, and she's also a punching bag that won't fight back. Nynaeve isn't ragingly abusive, but she is short-tempered, stubborn, irrational, and prone to making shitty comments. People like that have a kind of wearing toxicity. What you get from them in a constant barrage of irritability, 
refusal to give an inch and always having to have their way and always capitulating to them because of their temper, it counts as abuse, even if it's not intentional. And it's the price that Egwene pays for the other things that she gets from Nynaeve. It's unhealthy, and Egwene learns unhealthy habits from Nynaeve. Nynaeve's a bully, and Egwene learns that from her and employs those techniques until she learns better and becomes much more effective and formidable for it. There's a terrible and disturbing scene in The Fires of Heaven where Egwene finally turns the tables on Nynaeve, calling her out on her bullshit, which is totally deserved, using Teleron Riyadh to make nightmare monsters to demonstrate the dangers of the world of dreams, which is something that the wise ones did to her, and probably the one thing that would make a stubborn Two Rivers person actually pay attention and then having those monsters sexually assault Nynaeve, which is utterly fucking outrageous. And it is also something that I don't think Egwene would ever in a million years have done. Robert Jordan saw women as less sexually threatening, which is the reason he chose to have his male protagonist stalked, harassed, and assaulted, I think he wanted to have male readers get a taste for what that sort of attention is like so they could feel how gross it was without there ever being a real quote-unquote sense of threat. I think he was exposed to rape or rape victims in Vietnam. I know that most combat soldiers dealt with that kind of stuff because when you have a horrible war unraveling in that type of a situation. Generally, the young men and teenage boys, any men of fighting age are scooped up and conscripted, and then the women, the children, and the old people are the victims in all senses of the word. And I know that, you know, I've read and studied a great deal about the Vietnam War. I know that combat veterans were exposed to all kinds of terrible things and saw terrible depravities. Uh, so I think having been exposed to rape or rape victims in Vietnam, he struggled between wanting the story to be realistic and having to tap that trauma. And so he acknowledged sexual assault in women as little as possible. He did it just enough to be real. And he made the boys be victims instead. But I don't believe he felt a woman could ever victimize a man as badly. And that's why there's this disconnect. Those of us in 2020 know unreservedly that what Tylan did to Matt was rape. But it doesn't feel so serious to Robert Jordan. And my point is that a female author would have known that a woman making melty dream monsters and having them grab her friend and tear her dress is committing assault. And I think Jordan saw it as comparable to the kind of monster terror that Amis flicked on Egwene when she caught her in the world of dreams without an escort. I know a lot of people loathe Egwene because of the scene with her melty, rapey dream monsters that she sets on Nynaeve, and if I thought it was true to her character, she'd deserve it. But I just don't for one second. I think it's an accurate writing. I think he missed it in editing, probably because it didn't occur to him. I just don't think that he looked at that and thought, this is an assault that one friend is committing. Um, because he just does not or did not see women is capable of hurting other women or hurting men in a sexual fashion in that way. Um, unless they were like Grendel using actual like compulsion. Anyway, that's my tangent about that. I know that a lot of people have real issues with Egwene because of that scene. And I want to couch my love for her in this qualifying statement that I don't find that scene to be true to her character. And that happens with writing 
you can write. I have a novel sitting in my drawer that I have realized there's a whole section of my character that is completely untrue to the rest of him. And I would have to completely go back and rewrite it from scratch to fix it. Uh, it happens. Sometimes you fuck up that way and Robert Jordan didn't catch it. Anyway, last episode I talked a bunch about Egwene hating being dismissed. Nynaeve doesn't dismiss her, except when she does. She sees Egwene's value, she thinks she's special, she thinks she's super capable, but she has strict ideas about how things should be. Most Two Rivers girls braid their hair at 16, but Egwene didn't until she was 17, and I wonder if not even the women's circle held her back because they saw her dislike for standards and rules and just the general structure that they expect of people in the Two Rivers as immaturity. She doesn't let people tell her what to do. There's a bit from Perrin when he and Egwene are together later where he actually thinks that Egwene doesn't like doing what other people want to do and she never lets anybody tell her what to do except maybe the wisdom. And I'm wondering if they held her braid back for a year because of that. Even worse, when it comes to rules and standards, Nynaeve can be really arbitrary. She makes a lot of decisions based on how she feels. Because of that, they're not always logical. As Rand tells us when they're in the private dining room of the stag and lion, Rand sighed. The wisdom was on the point of one of her tongue lashings, and it looked as if it might be a first-rate one. If she took a position in the heat of anger, if she said she intended to see them back in Emmons Field no matter what anybody said, for instance, she would be nearly impossible to budge. Dealing with an illogical person who has a temper can feel like handling a bomb. I know what it's like to make decisions based on how you feel. Which is why Nynaeve gets no passes from me for her behavior, and it's one of the reasons why she's one of my least favorite characters. I hate her hair-trigger temper and the way she behaves toward people with it, and it's something to be said for how good a writer Jordan is that I react to her as if she's a real person. That's wonderful character development. I used to make decisions based on how I felt, and then I changed my medication. And I'm not saying that Nynaeve's issues are so serious that she needs psych meds. I'm just saying that she must know some mood-stabilizing herbs. Like, maybe she should start smoking Two Rivers Not-at-all-whack-to-back. I mean, what she really needs is therapy, but as always, there is the theme of no therapists in Randland. One of the nice things, I guess, about having a verifiable mental illness is that I've spent plenty of time in therapy, and it has made me one of the sanest people I know, ironically, because I never let my emotions rule me. I'm always assessing them. Are they reasonable? Are they fair? Often the answer is no, but I never inflict them on other people. And having learned to make decisions based on what I think and on what's fair, I struggle with Nynaeve. And there's a lot of personal guilt wrapped in it, I think, because back when my mood wasn't so well regulated and I was still making decisions based on how I felt, I was often shitty to the people who mattered the most to me. And they had to deal with the lack of logic and arbitrary decisions and irritation, particularly when people wanted well-deserved explanations. My temper wasn't as bad as Nynaeve's, but that doesn't make it okay, and the way she treats people is not okay. Nynaeve's temper is exhausting. Egwene can handle strict discipline if it's sensical. She does well in the White Tower. She does well with the Wise Ones. But I bet as she got older, she really began to struggle with Nynaeve's bullshit. She doesn't have much patience for suffering fools, but she had to tolerate it because it was the price she had to pay for the intellectual stimulation and the knowledge that she gained and the acknowledgement of her own worth and the validation, but it's not a healthy relationship. 
And while there's no doubt she bears a great love for Nynaeve, she loves Nynaeve, and Nynaeve loves her, Moraine's calm was very attractive. I'm sure, I, I know that it's nice to be able to approach someone and not have to calculate if they'll be in a bad mood and snap your head off. It's stressful. The idea of being Nynaeve's apprentice is stressful. The idea of putting myself in Egwene's shoes is stressful. Nynaeve is the type of person I would want to run away from when I was younger. And at the age that I am now, no longer a bullied kid and knowing the secret to defeating bullies, she's the kind of person I would get off on tormenting the way Moraine torments her, by condescending to her and not giving her what she wants. And that tells you all sorts of things about my psychology and how much fun middle school was for me. Dealing with an irrational and temperamental person who can generally browbeat you into submission is exhausting, which is why Egwene left a note. As it says from Rand's point of view inside the dining room of the stag and lion when Nynaeve addresses the three boys and Egwene, Nynaeve shook her head disgustedly and looked at Egwene. Maybe I should not be surprised at this harebrained idiocy from you three, but I thought others had more judgment. Egwene sat back, so she was shielded by Perrin. I left a note, she said faintly. She tugged at the hood of her cloak as if she was afraid her unbound hair showed. I explained everything. Nynaeve's face darkened. She left a note because she didn't want to risk fighting about it, and because in choosing to leave, she's decided she's the master of her own destiny, at least until she becomes an initiative of the Tower. Because she's made this leap of independence, having Nynaeve show up in Barlon had to suck. She's one of the only people who can bully Egwene. It had to have been so frustrating and disappointing. She wants to show her new mentor, Moraine, a dedication to the new life she's chosen. And here comes the one person who is capable of intimidating her. A person who validates her one moment and treats her like a child when it suits her, even though that's what Egwene hates the most. Moraine is the one person who truly sees and gets Egwene. She accepts her as she is and grants her the intelligence, the agency, and the capability that she's due. Rand, when he looks at her, his focus is protecting her because that's his job. So he sees her as someone to be cared for and Nynaeve also wants to baby her. When Nynaeve meets up with Moraine and Lon after Shatter Logoth, and Moraine has finally convinced her she can channel, Nynaeve tells her the story of healing Egwene. And when she's telling her about it, she refers to her in such a way as she's saying things like, the child was soaked with sweat. Um, when Mistress Baron came back an hour later, the fever had broken. I always thought she believed I had given the child something. She just keeps referring to her as a child. Anyone else would have just used her name. They would not have referred to her as a child because now she isn't one. But Nynaeve is vulnerable. She's all fuckered up right now. And it's like the mental wall that makes her correct herself and keep the proper social conventions. Because Egwene is a woman now, is broken and she's being open and honest about her true vision of Egwene. Nynaeve's worried about all of the kids, because she doesn't see any of them as adults, but she's especially worried about Egwene. Moraine, on the other hand, shows that she sees Egwene as someone utterly self-sufficient and able to problem-solve, and not in need of babying. Moraine tells Nynaeve that one of the boys is across the river, and that the other two have lost their coins and are probably on their way down toward Whitebridge. Where is Egwene, then? You haven't even mentioned her. I do not know, Moraine admitted, but I hope that she is safe. You don't know? You hope? All that talk about saving her life by taking her to Tar Valen and she could be dead for all you know. I could look for her and allow the Myrtle more time before I arrive to help the two young men who went south. It is then the Dark One wants, not her. They would not bother with Egwene so long as their true quarry remains uncaught. 
Nynaeve remembered her own encounter, but she refused to admit the sense of what Moraine said. So the best you have to offer is that she may be alive if she was lucky. Alive, maybe alone, frightened, even hurt. Days from the nearest village are help except for us, and you intend to leave her. She may just as easily be safe with the boy across the river, or on her way to Whitebridge with the other two. In any case, there are no longer Trollocs here to threaten her, and she is strong, intelligent, and quite capable of finding her way to Whitebridge alone, if need be. Bam, Moraine. Egwene sees some cool uses of the power from winter night to shatter Logoth. She sees Moraine zap Trollocs with lightning and burn them with fireballs. She sees healing. She sees her call fog. She sees her sink the fairy, cleanse fatigue, make the mask of mirrors to fool the white cloaks. She sees her hit Trollocs with a switch and cause lines of fire to burn all over them. She sees her do the earthquake and firewall. She sees her make wards. In the Great Hunt, Egwene never reflects on Eye of the World events, so we can only speculate but by the time she's in Faldara, she needs regular lessons. In fact, Varen accuses her of forging ahead when she goes to give her a lesson as they're on the way to the river to take the ships down to Tarvalon. We know that she's eager for knowledge, but putting that against the backdrop of the events since leaving the Two River, there's so much more there. There are a number of situations in the eye of the world where Egwene had to have been wishing that her training had started. Fleeing the two rivers didn't seem to be too traumatic for her, but once they're in Barlon and the Fade comes to the inn, when Rand sees her once they're all gathering to, le to leave, he says in his inner narrative that she looks frightened almost to tears. I think she thought the pursuit was done once they got away clean after crossing the Terran. And once the fate is at the stag and lion, her adventure has gone from exciting to a bit too real. She does retain her courage. She's scared, but she does okay. When they get out and they get past the white cloaks, they make it a mile down the road and they look back, the inn is burning. And that is shaking to her. It hits home because however good she is at dealing with her fear, when Lon says, perhaps the light shines on us tonight, in reference to the fire distracting from Moraine's mask of mirrors, Egwene sees it as callous. And Moraine says, If they have attacked the inn, perhaps our exit from the town and my display went unnoticed. Unless that's what the murderer wants us to think, Lon added. Moraine nodded in the darkness. Perhaps. In any case, we must press on. There will be little rest for anyone tonight. You say that so easily, Moraine, Nynaeve exclaimed. What about the people at the inn? People must be hurt, and the innkeeper has lost his livelihood because of you. For all your talk about walking in the light, you're ready to go on without sparing a thought for him. His trouble is because of you. Because of those three, Lon said angrily. The fire, the injured, the going on, all because of those three. The fact that the price must be paid is proof that it is worth paying. The Dark One wants those boys of yours, and anything he wants this badly he must be kept from. Or would you rather let the Fade have them? Be at ease, Lon, Moraine said. Be at ease. Wisdom, you think I can help Master Fitch and the people at the inn? Well, you are right. Nynaeve started to say something, but Moraine waved it away and went on. I can go back by myself and give some help. Not too much, of course. That would draw attention to those I helped, attention they would not thank me for, especially with the children of the light in the town, and that would leave only Lon to protect the rest of you. He is very good, but it will take more than him if a murderer and a fist of Trollocs find you. Of course, we could all return, though I doubt I can get all of us back into Barlon unnoticed, and that would expose all of you to whomever set that fire, not to mention the White Cloaks. Which alternative would you choose, Wisdom, if you were I? I would do something, Nynaeve muttered unwillingly. When Lon insists that the fact that the price must be paid means that it's worth paying, that settles Egwene. She believes at this point that the Shadow Spawn are after the boys, especially because Nynaeve seems to think that there might be something to it, and she, meaning Egwene, is logical. But she also trusts Lon and Moraine. Nynaeve doesn't, and she fights against Moraine with all of passion and i wonder if by fighting 
against Moraine with passion instead of logic, she's proving Moraine's points to Egwene, since Egwene is such a logical person. Has Egwene admitted to herself all of the issues that she has with Nynaeve? Has she listed in her head that she's childish, inconsistent, a bully, or is it just this generic frustration? And also, I wonder, does she enjoy seeing someone that has the antidote to Nynaeve's bullying? I'm wondering how conflicted she feels. Has she gotten to the point of frustration with Nynaeve that she enjoys seeing someone Nynaeve cannot dominate? Normally, Egwene is on Team Nynaeve, but at this point, their desires aren't compatible. Nynaeve wants to tell her what to do with her life, and Egwene isn't having it. I think Egwene had some pretty strong feelings of dismay when Nynaeve showed up in Barlon. She must have been really afraid Nynaeve would throw a huge fit in the private dining room to get her way, and it's a good thing Tom derailed her with threats of the white cloaks, and then Rand diverted her by saying, what you want really doesn't matter, we need to go on. Egwene is really good at processing things, so I feel like she would have worked through her fear at the Fade being at the inn and the shock at it burning and all the general stress of the night pretty quickly and compartmentalize them. And I see her then writing the rest of the time and over the course of the two days until they hear the Trolloc horns feeling tense and tired and more than a little resentful that Nynaeve is there. For for those two nights, surely there were no more private talks with more rain. Nynaeve is always motioning for Egwene to stay close, and I see her feeling regretful and stifled, like, you made village life tolerable for me, you made me feel appreciated and heard, but everything has to be done your way, and I'm through with that. You're a complication, you're impeding my choices and my growth, Corona has taught me that it's impossible to sustain anxiety when you're facing an existential threat if it is not immediately in your face. So I could see Egwene losing her fear, the fear that propelled them through the night in their escape and just starting to be resentful instead. But this resentment isn't going to be an issue for long. Their dynamic changed when Egwene chose to leave. And it will change again in the battle before Shatter Logoth, when suddenly survival makes all of this other stuff a hell of a lot less important. Even soldiers who volunteer are terrified. Today in the United States, all of our soldiers are volunteers. But in Robert Jordan's time, there was the draft. And that was the way that he understood things. And so the tone of this story right now is of the boys being draftees and Egwene, the volunteer. I would assume every volunteer for military service has a moment when they face enough fear or danger where they second-guess their choice. And I think the horns on the Camelon Road was it for Egwene. Once they're in Shatter Logoth, after they've been driven by the horns, after they've had the battle, the first battle, after they've fled the second wave of Trollocs, I think she was tapped out. She had to deal with this utter sense of powerlessness in the battle. All she has is a teeny little belt knife, she and Nynaeve both. All they could really do was just stay close to Moraine, hoping that she would be able to protect all three of them, and all the time wishing that she could channel better. Having had lessons already from Moraine, I'll bet anything she was trying to channel. So she's powerless in this first battle. Lon cuts off the Myrtle's head, all of the Trollocs die, they flee until the second wave catches up to them, and then Moraine makes the earthquake that knocks them all over, does the firewall, sends their scent off toward the mountains, and they travel into the city and through the city, hide out in the building that Lon picks, and Egwene goes in with Nynaeve and Moraine, and the boys bring the horses in, stable them, and sneak out the back. At some point, and noticing that the boys have gone. There had to have been words between Moraine and Nynaeve, but I'm not sure what those words would have been. 
Uh, maybe have something as simple as naive, noticing Moraine's body language, uh, and it saying that the fact that the boys were gone was a really bad thing, and then Moraine refusing to communicate to Nynaeve exactly what that bad thing was. But I think Egwene was probably silent throughout it, just too frightened to participate. And I'm not sure what her thoughts were, but I'm betting that she was very glad at that point that Nynaeve was there. I think that Nynaeve at that point had gone from a hindrance and just a general, like, you know, cock-blocking my life to comforting. Um, in my episode about trauma and Shatter Logoth, Egwene was the one person I left out as to what she found most troubling that night. I think the most horrible thing for her was learning how many limits there were to an Aes Sedai's power. Moraine can't destroy all the Trollocs. She has to decide between plans based on the limits of her energy. Having access to the true source does not make her invincible. When Egwene asks if she can kill Mashadar, she just laughs. I don't know how much time Egwene spent afraid growing up, but who knows? I'm guessing not a ton. I think that, except for maybe like her bully sister Loisa, she was probably for the most part a pretty fearless kid. But maybe the idea of having access to the One Power was a way of feeling safe for her, or maybe it's a way to ensure that she's taken seriously. It is hard to dismiss a channeler. In Shatter Logoth, Egwene didn't get the extra terror of Mordith, but knowing that the Trollocs were driven into the city was pretty terrifying. As Lon says, they are not going out of their way to search, and they are so slipshod that if they were not heading nearly straight for us, I would say we had nothing to worry about. He hesitated. There is something else? Only this, Lon said slowly. The murder will force the Trollocs into the city. What forced the murderal? Everyone had been listening in silence. Now Tom cursed under his breath, and Egwene breathed a question. The Dark One? Don't be a fool, girl, Nynaeve snapped. The Dark One is bounded Shale Ghoul by the Creator. For the time being, at least, Moraine agreed. So, that had to have been really fucking scary. Because whether or not it was the Dark One, just wondering what could scare a murderal badly enough to force it into the city. She's so scared when they ride out. It says, Egwene's shoulders were hunched as if she were trying to ease Bella's hooves to the pavement. Rand did not even want to breathe. Sound might attract attention. When they're separated, when Mashadar separates the rest of the party from Moraine and Lawn, and then when they run into the Trollocs and everybody says this way and runs in 50 different directions, Egwene probably had a pretty straight shot at the gate uh, because she's not the one that they're looking for. And so she's trying to creep out of the city and Perrin's been sitting watching the same gate for five minutes. I think she sees him and she watches him for a while, she sees that he's really big and in the shadows with the horse and everything. She calls for Rand because it's big enough that it could potentially be Rand. And at this point, Rand is who she wants to see. Egwene believes in true love. Everybody wants a real love story. If you're a romantic, you do. And if you don't have a lot of choices in your village, and people act like you're promised to someone from an early age. You'd like it to be a love story. And it was probably sad when she, a couple of years before, began to realize Rand wasn't who she wanted him to be. He wasn't adventurous, he wasn't very interesting, and he didn't want more. He was happy with where he was and what he had, and she wanted something different, but now they're both out in the world, and she's happy about it, he's not. But if he has no choice, maybe there's something for them. There's something safe about having someone always promised for you, and maybe they even have a teeny bit of chemistry. So Rand is who she wants to see, but instead it's Perrin. And I can see when she hears that it's Perrin, 
her feeling relieved. Like she may not consciously feel relieved about it, but I can see her instinctively knowing that her chances for survival were better with Perrin, that they would butt heads less and it would be easier to cooperate with him. They meet up and they make their way out of the city. They know that Moraine can find them and they're following the Red Star. And then they end up being chased by Trollocs. If it had been Rand, I don't think they would have escaped. Because they're starting to be chased and Bella has shorter legs. So Perrin's horse leaves her behind and Trollocs can run as fast as a horse. So they're gaining on her. Rand would have turned back out of gallantry and out of his hero's heart and gotten them both killed. Perrin knows he can't help her. He's practical, and the best that he can do is look over his shoulder and tell her to hurry and urge her to make the horse run faster because there's nothing else to be done. So she survives because she's with Perrin. Rand would have ridden back because he's a dumbass, and they both would have died. They're just lucky enough to be on the banks of the river, or they would have died anyway. I don't know about you, but I find few things more uncomfortable than the sensation of falling. I hate dreams about falling. I would never want to die by falling. And the idea of falling in the dark? Egwene hears Perrin yell because he goes over first, and he tips almost headfirst out of the saddle, which is why he loses his horse. And maybe hearing him yell, like, shocked or startled her in a way that caused her to, like, tighten her grips on the reins or whatever. So she was fortunate enough to keep hold as she splashed into the river. So she has a grip as Bella begins to swim downstream, tugging her across. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I've really been enjoying doing these explorations of Egwene in the Eye of the World. It's been a lot of fun and super illuminating. And if you've been having at least half as much fun as I have, I consider that a real success. You can find me on Twitter at Warder Gray. That's Gray with an E. Check out Watt Trivia and Games. You can find the link to the Discord at Trivia Watt. There's a really awesome community there. You can check out and play on a whole bunch of the different trivia teams. There's uh, several different types of games there. There's a big hub where you can find a whole bunch of different discords. Check out a whole bunch of different Watt content creators. Podcast of the Dragon has its own channel on that discord. So you can go and talk to me. Tell me what you think about the podcast. Give me some ideas for future episodes. Uh, give me constructive criticism. If you want to just shoot me an email, you can do that at podcastofthedragon at gmail.com. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder, and I know that in the old tongue, Aes Sedai stands for never again volunteer yourself.